UX Podcast Episode 271. Hello, I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. This is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 200 countries and territories in the world, from Norway to Thailand. Today's a link show. Now, normally I'd say that link shows feature well, at least two articles that Per and I have discovered uh, in our travels around the internet reading things, um, which is true this time as well, really but it's a little bit different. Yeah, we started listening uh, or listing and suggesting articles to each other in our usual chat. And um, one of them that you suggested, I started reading that and I realized, well, I could spend so much time with this article. And that article in itself linked off to another article that it was inspired by and another article it was inspired by. And all of a sudden I was in this link mess reading different things and getting all these new ideas, which... I reasoned, I, this has to be the thing we spend the time on because we can't do more than one article. We do this one, but also the spin-offs coming out of it. Yeah, exactly. Now, basically, Stephen Anderson, who we've talked to on the show a few times, and we've had him on link shows before as well. He's articles on link shows. Now, Stephen is, has a wonderful mind, and he's got this wonderful ability to write about things and to press the right buttons in my head, or your head too, Per, at least, and probably many other people's heads, to get them thinking about things. Mm. And the way in which he explores topic areas and spaces and references other people and brings in other people and other people's work is really inspiring and really does get you thinking. And because he also he also shares how his thought process works and where he got his ideas, which is f- fantastic. Because that then you realize, well, I can start with his idea, or I can go back and start with that idea if I want that. Yeah, and that's kind of what we did. Um, Stephen, in a tweet, said he was working on a new article, um, and I replied to that tweet and. I quizzed him a little bit about something I presumed was what he was doing. Um, he, he mentioned what I thought was the, the, the list of articles he annually rereads, so rereads every year. Turns out he doesn't have that, but I really do like the idea of having a collection of articles that you do read every year to remind yourselves of certain you know, processes, thoughts, ideas, exactly. spaces yeah. to explore. So, so that, that's, But that's a, that's a different show. Um, <coughs> but Stephen himself references and mentions um, Christina Woodke as an inspiration or at least a source of um, nagging and talking about loops and arcs all the time. Mm. And loops and arcs seems to be the main inspiration for what Stephen, the journey he went down exploring this new concept that he was trying to figure out based on a an inherent drive and frustration with a common tool in service design, customer journey maps. And the fact that customer journey maps are always drawn as linear, uh, giving the impression that users always follow the same type of path through a service. And we, uh, I say we, as, as a profession, we, we have journey mapping workshops. We, we do lots of 
um, exploratory uh, research and try to produce linear journey maps. And I've, in my teaching to do with analytics, I, I, I often bring up journey maps as something, uh, I mean, I don't maybe complain about them all the time, but I highlight to people how the linear journey map is not something you see in your data. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, it might be the most. It might be a common route through your service or website or so on, but when you look at the data, you see that people are going up and down, left, right. They're traveling through the site in very, very many different ways. So that I, reminds me of of our interview with Dana Chisnell when we were talking about when how people vote, and she looked at the the user customer journey map or the voter journey map in that case, and looked at that, did her interviews, and looked at it again and realized. Well, people aren't moving this way. They're moving, moving in a thousand different ways hmm. to get to the, vo- to the voting booth. Yeah. <laughs> so so this, this was my, this was for me what really got me excited by Stephen's teases about what he was going to write about. There's, you know, I, w- I was triggered by the fact that he was kind of complaining a bit about journey mapping and uh, linear stories in that sense. Hmm. Um, but should we spool our way back to what we're going to consider the beginning of this story. Loops and arcs. With Daniel, um, Daniel's article, um, Daniel Wood, wasn't it? Cook. Daniel Cook. Daniel Cook. Um, he wrote an article back in 2012. And his article is called Loops and Arcs, uh, fittingly. And it explains loops and arcs from a game mechanics perspective. Yeah, his, his tagline on his blog um, uh, it says that this is a collection of thoughtful essays on game design theory, art, and the business of design. Hmm. Now, UX designers are uh, definitely familiar with the concept of gamification and adding game elements to your designs, uh, often mistakenly thinking that adding scoreboards and stuff like that is what adds to the gamification experience, whereas... Articles like this really contribute to the understanding of what gaming is and the game mechanics is in that he explains very, so very well about loops as the smallest, smallest component of game design wherein a person performs an action within a game. Let's say they try to open a door. First, they have to actually understand what they're looking at. They have to have the mental model that they have the possibility of opening something that looks like a door perhaps uh, they try that, something happens. And so the action uh, does System something. Itself, yeah, the, the, the game itself responds. Mm. Responds. So there's a feedback there, and you look at, oh, the door did open. And so now I learned that there was a loop, I can open the door, and so I can go on after that and open a lot of doors. So loops yeah, so are the next time you a meet learning a door, experience. Yeah. The next time you meet a door, you will try to exercise your previously learned knowledge on that next door, which will be quicker effectively or more successful i guess because you've you've done a knowledge loop already mm. previous in the the game and the more loops you go through uh in a game of course the more understanding you build and the more confidence you build and you become confident at playing a game so these loops are fractal and occur at multiple levels and frequencies throughout a game they are almost always exercised multiple times either within a game or by playing the game multiple times, to quote um, Daniel's article. And I think I, I made the connection when I was reading this. Well, this is how we learn as human beings, of course, as well. When you look at toddlers, 
they they try to stand up and fall down and they reach for things and they drop things and they i think uh, steven has in his article the uh, putting your hand on a hot plate and pulling it away those are also small loops that create understanding that make you more confident to trying again because you see the feedback you see what happens that gives you the confidence to think you may you may understand how to do it well next time yeah it's an exploratory learning mm -hmm. loop um model um, you've got a model leads to um, t uh, making an action um, into a or towards a certain system and that that system gives you feedback um, and then you update mm -hmm. your mental model and go around um which uh, actually daniel points out that um pre-computer age all the games we played are effectively just loops mm. he lists things like chess monopoly and you know a lot of these classic games that we used to play or still play um they're they're just based on iterative loops lift loops the whole time like you get better at learning yeah. and understanding the loops and you sequence well maybe the loops together or you you play certain loops together mm. during these games to be successful at them and he points out that it's it's maybe only when the computer age of games came around with adventure games um, where we started mixing together both loops and arcs. Mm. I guess now is probably a time to talk a little bit about arcs. So arcs is perhaps not a, not the next step. It's like a parallel step, I guess, uh, to loops in that something that takes you from one point to another without being a loop. It's actually something that you go through and experience, but then you exit it immediately after that. So it's a broken loop, you exit immediately, is what he says. Mm. He gives the examples of watch a movie and read a book. I'm thinking within gameplay that it's also those segments of stories that exist between levels sometimes these days, and sometimes even backstories that you're given through a short video before starting an adventure game. Uh, so they're actually telling you a story. It's not something that you are doing and getting feedback from. The feedback is just uh, finding out the story. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're. I suppose this is where we're experiencing a journey. That mm -hmm. like you've still got a, a model. You're, you're still doing something, and there are there are bounds to that experience. And then you have a result. There's a there's a there's a oh an end point to this. Um, but the point isn't actually learning, updating, and doing it again. Now the the point is the whole arc. That is in itself what you're trying to do. Mm. So th I think the the analogy with with like adventure games compared to um, an arcade game, so like things like Pac-Man, mm. then it's designed in a way which makes you want to keep on you know coming back and playing it, and you play it multiple times, and you kind of you know you you want to put another coin in the slot to play it again, going back to you know the the eighties seventies eighties when arcade mm. games really came about, whereas when you start looking at the the um, you know, the adventure games that came maybe in the eighties nineties where you you taking yourself and character through a game yeah. not to be repeated. I mean, we have lots of these games where once you've played them once, it's done. Exactly. You don't play yeah. it again because mm. you've experienced the story arc and doing it a second time mm. wouldn't deliver any value. Right. And that, I think, is one of the, the, the points that comes from it, that the, 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 value, the value of an arc is in the feedback at the end of the arc itself. Exactly. Your payoff, I suppose, mm. as you say, is, the, is the, the feedback at the end, the conclusion. That makes me think of, uh, I think you and I have talked about on the show before, uh, choose your own adventure games. 
that I absolutely loved. Uh, Text-based mm. choose-your-own-adventure games. Books. From the f- paper books. <laughs> from the that, 80s. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, where essentially, uh, the text tells you, you wake up in a dark cave. There's light to the east and to the west. And you can write, go east. And you get eaten by a lion. Oh, now I don't. I, now I know I don't go east, so I need, mm. I need to go west. That's sort of a small learning loop within the the arc. But now you can actually pursue the other path. And in the end, there's not many, not, not many paths you can pursue. So there's the big arc. But in within that arc, lots of small learning loops. Yeah, they're, they're, they allow they allowed you to have little deviations from the mm. the main arc. But they 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 were just moments of of distractive exploration i guess on your way on the uh, main arc i mean there was still one big one designed or teaching you how to pick something up perhaps or how to light a fire or something like that do you want to pause a second pad oh i can hear that we're keeping that in the show definitely really yes obviously then we have to explain it i know but yes because that's it's actually it's a loop. It's the same month. Uh, or uh, Now it's every three months, quarter. I think. Yeah, it's every quarter. Yeah, it's every quarter now. It used to be every month before that they play this alarm that you're hearing in the background. And this is the test of that system. Same time every quarter, three o'clock. And the point is of the system that you're supposed to be able to hear it from everywhere in Sweden. The danger is over. Where were we? So what Daniel is, is doing in this article, he's... he's uh, and building up uh, to his point about mixing loops and arcs and actually enhancing the game experience by using combinations of loops and arcs, parallel arcs, uh, and you can also, so, and also micro parallel arcs. But what the parallel arcs would be um, playing a song at the same time as you're doing something else, and the song actually carries part of the experience. Micro parallel arcs, that was. Um a bit more difficult to get my head around. Snippets of evocative stimuli as you progress through the level. And the snippets of evocative stimuli, I mean, only the imagination can can, can be your border there. Yeah, that's, that's why I got. I thought it was a little bit difficult to understand exactly what that meant. Because um, the definition was as complicated as the phrase itself. So. Yeah. I actually don't play Half-Life. He actually tells, says the game Half-Life there, and I don't play that, so I don't know how to explain what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, No, he actually says um, the article, the arc is a central rule book for a larger game consisting primarily of loops. Mm. So he, so he's in conclusion, he's, he's saying that um, it's easy to stay on like the, the trodden path of actually doing the same thing type of gameplay over and over and peop- the game uh, game companies they build sequels and and do the same gameplay again but he's he's encouraging people to challenge traditional gameplay by inventing different new different combinations of loops and arcs hmm. where you actually don't perhaps need to uh, reach a goal but he's he has the examples of build a hobby or create a fortified island nation with an ongoing stream of revenue. So never-ending gameplay, if you will. Yeah, remove any elements mm-hmm. of computer mm-hmm. game where you can beat, um, that you can beat, or render that game boring or meaningless upon repeated play. So yeah, fascinating aspects when it comes to game design and game um, theory. Mm-hmm. But so now we have to circle back to Steven Anderson. <laughs> yes. And his how he's using this to cope with his frustration of the linear customer journey maps. Uh, 
he, he, you have to also uh, know that as he's explaining his frustration with journey maps, he also references Andrea Rismini, uh, who has a, a an explanation of cross-channel ecosystems that we actually interviewed him on the show about before. And so that is currently one of, of Stephen Anderson's favorite explanations for for a non-linear journey map. And I can hear the alarm going off behind you now. <laughs> Another thing that references course is, is, um, is his colleague's article, um, Eric Flower, yep. from 2017. And this article um, is, well, this is, this is where we introduce um, another aspect to all of this. So we had arcs and loops. And Eric has a, um, his background, I guess, is, or his writings, at least at this time, were very much around service design. Mm. And the article that Stephen references is three analogies for the aggregate nature of service design. Mm. And oh, it starts off by saying, how do you predict and then shape the behavior of the population? Or better, how do you design for something that is the collection of countless touch points or products that are interlinked, each with their own vastly different user experience? Mm. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe cut to the chase a little bit, Per, in, in the sense that I think one of the quickest and best ways of getting a feeling for what Eric was talking about in his article is looking at the video, which is linked in his article. And which Stephen links in his article. Right. They're both inspired by Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. And the video we're talking about, it's, it's actually really, really fascinating. Um, it's basically a, um, it's a video from 2013 Gamerscon conference where almost a thousand people um, played through a level of Super Mario Brothers. Um, and they recorded it. And then they basically, I suppose, overlaid all these onto the same full level view of um, of that of that particular um, part of the Super Mario Brothers game. And what you see in the video um, is how, well, how they're, these thousand people, how they progress through the level. And you know, of course, everyone starts off at the very same platform, and they're they're jumping down, they're kind of bouncing, they're jumping up, they're they're hitting things, they're bouncing back, they're resetting, trying again, and then as time goes on, it's like a crest of a wave kind of thing. There's more and more people get further and further into the game and succeed in taking themselves further and further into the level. And mm. there's still, you know, even when you get right towards the end, there's still people who are completely lost and are completely stuck still at a very early point in the level. Right. But by and large, you can see how there is. I think Stephen in his article talks about how you can, I suppose if you, if you squint, if you just kind of like blur things a little bit, you can see the golden path through the level. Mm. <laughs> um, that people, there is a, there is a kind right. of uh, no, a, a desired path through the level, but it's which not is, the only path which through is the not, level. Not, which is not really the point, but yeah, yeah exactly. It's what he yeah, says yeah, it's also, not the point, and it's, it's, it's not the only way we're through it. No, it's not the only way of succeeding, I guess, mm. of the, the level. Um, mm. But Which the point rather is then what they are going through, what all the players are going through is the same thing, the landscape that they are traversing. So what uh, Stephen goes on to call the terrain. Yeah. 
and which is what we as designers are creating. And what Eric and Stephen have been discussing, that the role we are playing is designing that landscape or terrain, or even he's, he's using the phrase sandbox, uh, which seems to be Stephen's favorite term, uh, which means that they feel that they're, they're seeing the role as quite different from most designers. So it's not designing for the person and the perfect path that they can take through the terrain, but they're designing the, designing the terrain so that the person can choose their own path. Hmm. Well, this whole thing with terrain, though, this is what um, Stephen and Eric, I guess, are, are talking has been like a third element uh, of thinking about service design. Hmm. Um, and you know, the whole thing about design, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, Stephen hasn't talked about it from the viewpoint of controlling the terrain or designing the terrain. Well, I mean, I, uh, it's, it's maybe a bit, I don't know, maybe it's not quite that. Um, a quote here. Think of terrain as the environment um, or ecosystem in which all players play. Yeah, it's a sandbox itself. Um, if there's a national park with dozens of trails, which was Eric's example, the terrain mm. is the entire park itself. That's the quote from Stephen's article. Mm. Um, but I think it's kind of more, this feels to me that terrain is, the, is like the current realm. It's it's the extent and state of the world as we can currently observe it and map it. So, Stephen in the article talks about how um, you you can um, um, you can I think the example was like a shop or Eric's example was a shop that like you can you you get a building and then mm. you know you can do things in that building you can take down a wall or you can add some surfaces counters or whatever you can mm. work in that space. Right. But your space is finite, not known, and mapped. You have mm. this is this is the sandbox you have to play with. Now, in some situations, that's going to be something we design and create. In other situations, it's going to be something we've mapped or inherited. Right. And reflects our current mm. understanding of that yep. space or our current um, extent of influence over the mm. space. It might be that we can't control beyond this place, so you know we're, we're maybe this is like a. In some way, I start thinking about um, um, like Stephen Hawking's and and brief history of time and like noble universe and and like um, uh, the the where we get to the point where like black holes start sucking in all light and it's like <laughs> <laughs> you, you know can you see beyond that and where's the no, where's the where's the end to our observable universe and it's um, you get you get quite. This is where I say the thinking starts to really kick Parallel in. Parallel really universes, but uh, yeah, I, the <laughs> thing is, as as you're saying that, I'm th I'm thinking about like uh, infinite spaces because I've been working on mural uh, the the past couple of days, and you can actually expand the worksheet to whatever size you want it to be, and you can add tools and you can and you can work there, and that is your space. Uh, but then I I also use other online whiteboards, but I can't easily move the objects in that space to my other space. So if we take the broader perspective is that I am a person moving between different spaces and you as a designer can't control all of them. You you can, just cannot. So either you accommodate that or you just allow me to be in my space and take stuff with me or you confine me to that space and say, no, you cannot. Yes, this is an excellent example because there, as, as from, a, from a terrain perspective, mm -hmm. then you'd maybe want to, to map all of those related spaces mm. because within those related spaces there are there are loops that are beneficial to you 
and transferable between spaces. Exactly. Yes. So, so you might do a loop mm. in w tool C, mm. and you might actually cause frustration in tool B. Mm. And this is uh, this is something else we talked about with um, like Jared Spool calls this um, um, current knowledge. That you, what you, well, consistency is not always the thing you aim for. It's more what does the person understand and know. Mm. So, so we can translate that to be what loops have they performed, and what loops will be useful in our terrain to help them on an arc. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I see this as um, thinking back to Andreas, um, Andrea Rasimi's eco mapping. The eco um, system mapping when he has mm. all the circles and the lines connecting between it, and he uses different colours to kind of, I suppose, light up connected journeys mm. or, or a path through the ecosystem. Right. This is and one possible path. That's another possible path. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in some ways, you can just like mm. you know this one we're going to look at, this one we're going to mm. look at now, and I started I started to think about the um, how you would like chart the seas. You you have to have a you have to have a, a map of the seas, a chart of the seas, in order to be in order to safely navigate the seas. Mm. Like you you need to know there's rocks there and there's rocks there. You don't there's not one there's not one way to sail across the ocean. But to sail across the ocean safely, you have to have a map of the sea. Someone mm. has to have mapped it so you understand the space that you're sailing in. Yep. I think this. And you have to trust the map. You have to trust the map, and mm. well, or, or rather, you have to maybe be open that the map's not maybe correct. Because, like, if we go a bit way back and talking about, like, um, my example about the, the the known universe, I guess, and and how far <laughs> you can see, then once upon a time, in fact, some people still do. The Earth, was, you know, thought the Earth was flat. So, so, so the maps at that point were only as defined and as as big as mm. the as the flat world, and they worked perfectly okay until you reached the edge of them. So what's important there was not to fear going over the edge. It was more to be open to the fact that your map could be updated. Right, and most maps are wrong. This is a favorite topic of mine because we have the Mercator projection that's up in every classroom around the world. It makes a lot of sense for time zones because you can just draw straight lines and that's a time zone. But I mean, that's not the way the world looks. <laughs> the sizes of the countries aren't correct. Uh, the distances between countries aren't correct. So it's it's just weird. But it serves one purpose, and the, so other maps serve other purposes. Hmm. I don't know where we ended up now, but this is the fun thing <laughs> about the, this type of topic is that it's it's exciting because it makes you think about different topic areas and it makes you make connections between things that you haven't thought about in a while. But perhaps could they be relevant to the thing that actually I think Stephen is working towards as we're continuing with this article. Yeah. Now, this has is, this is really uh, managed to get me quite excited mm. about um, ways which we could further explore mapping and um, or journey mapping. Um, you know, with this whole thing where people are experiencing loops, and in the loops we update our current knowledge, our mental models, and then, then from there we go on arcs where we string together a series of loops or knowledge uh, segments and, and string that together to achieve things. Mm. And that thing we achieve is just one of many possible outcomes. Mm. And, and this really does feel like a space which can help me um, design better environments and understand people's use of those environments better. Mm. Exactly. 
I think the point that that Stephen makes about the order of things, uh, it actually g- gave me an aha moment. Uh, now we uh, we talked about this as arcs and loops, and we ended on terrain, but the the real order he's saying is number one terrain, number two loops, and number three arcs. And the reason it's in that order is it's about control, because you can control the terrain much more than you can control the loops and arcs, and much more than you can control the person within that terrain and loops and arcs and how they are reacting. But the the interesting thing is that you can you can try and control the way the people move through your terrain, or you can allow them to move the way they want, but just keep the terrain understandable and workable for them. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm not completely sure. I mean, that whole thing about which order it is, it's it's really interesting. Because it loops back again to what I say about the, what we discussed about where does the end of your terrain that's, mm. y- that you can control end and start and how much does it interplay with other terrains? Um, yeah. It, yeah, it all depends on where, what if you say you're working with, on service design, you're working with a specific product. Mm-hmm. But that is actually, as we were talking about before, that is limiting the space to something that is not a sense of the world the way that each user sees it, of course, because they're moving across different sites, different webs, and they're moving offline and, and reading even books, hmm. choose your own adventure books on in paper. <laughs> so maybe maybe what we've come to here, Per, is it, we've added a fourth to this, haven't we? Because you've could got be. loops, arcs, terrains. But then we've, I mean, Eric's in his article talks, Eric talks in the article a lot about the holistic nature of things. Yeah. But But I guess what we've, talking about now is that yes the, the terrain is that um space that you're really interested in you know the national park mm. um, or the product but you can still zoom out f- you know one level further or at least another bigger level and start looking at the the, the broader landscape which is really what what Merzmini is talking about when he's saying cross-channel not that i think about it because he's he's talking specifically about moving between different types of services yeah, mm. yeah, and uh, yeah, and and interconnecting services and and mm. things that um, I mean the the example that um, Andreas used in when we talked to him um, uh, is with buying a cinema ticket or going to the cinema mm. that you um, it's not just about buying a ticket on a website um, it's about um, arranging with friends that you're going to go deciding on a mm. film obtaining the tickets choosing you know mm. um, taking yourself to the cinema getting yourself ready to go to go into the experience you know, buying snacks and so on going through the experience itself and then getting home mm. again at the end of it so so when it comes to mapping the experience it's it's cross channel channel and multi-domain mm. maybe domains is a thing above terrains this is interesting because then it's it's easier to to get stuck in this model. I think when we are specifically talking about game mechanics, because you're within the game and the game is the thing that is where you want to attempt that where where you want to achieve your goals. But as we're working with online tools, the end game is usually not the tool, but something else that you're trying to achieve outside in your own real world space, mm. w- together with other people. Mm. Uh, which means that we have to take that into account. We have to think broader than the specific service that we're looking at mm. just now. That's the same for all the things, isn't it? Even if you're even if it's an e-commerce website, mm. the 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 point isn't the website. Exactly. Yeah. The point is, you know, if if you're going mm. to a website to buy a new spade, then the point is buying a new spade. <laughs> the point is planting your damn bushes. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Or, like... no, the point is showing off your bushes to your neighbor. No, the point is inviting your neighbor to dinner. No, so, I mean, yeah. Well, but I'm going to show forever. off my new spade. <laughs> Damn, that's a nice looking spade, James. <laughs> wow, that's a great bush. Probably Did time we to get out up. of control here? I think, I think, I think we I think actually we... stayed on topic a bit, though. Uh, we did. Until I think, the end. I think, I mean, one of the huge purposes of this show was to actually acknowledge the fact of how, how interesting it is to just explore blog posts. This reminded me of how internet was like for me way back, like 15, 20 years ago, when I was just reading different blogs, linking between those blogs, moving between them, and seeing how people were talking about each other's findings and insights and building on that and having fun with it yeah without it having to be so well thought out before you actually put it out to the world i think i think this is this really nicely ties it back to what we said at the beginning mm. that this was a this was a journey through a tweet um related yes. conversations that people had mm. in the tweet it's an article from 2012 an article mm. from 2017 mm. and a summary article with some new thinking from 2021 mm. you're right this is this is this is wonderful how thoughts can uh, mature develop be um brought up again thought through again it's it's um yeah it's a real nice feeling and i i enjoy doing these little exploratory thinking sessions with these articles and a huge thanks to everyone who puts down puts down the time to actually write them write all this stuff and share it and just be open about this is something i'm thinking about what do you think and um you can of course listen to some recommended listening and a really really relevant one is episode 144 which is um, anticipatory design and cross-channel ecosystems uh, which is a two part it's, it's two people in one show there because what we, um, we used to do that kind of thing when we went to events we recorded double interviews and squeeze them into one show um, but that's actually a chat with Sarah Doody um, and a chat to Andrea Rismini really worth listening to oh that, that is one excellent uh and that exactly, and that interview with Sarah Dude, I think, is relevant. Well, everything we do is relevant. <laughs> Same. Everything we do is irrelevant. Oh, yeah. there is, there, I think there will be so many links in the show, actually, uh, yeah. which will be loads of fun. Uh, and uh, I know we have volunteers these days that help us out with that, which is fantastic. They do, which is really, really great. And all of that, of course, can be found along with the transcript on uxpodcast.com and maybe even where you're listening right now. Um, so click follow subscribe add us already if you aren't doing so already and join us again for our next episode and if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast then visit uxpodcast.com slash support remember to keep moving see you on the other side do the Mario Brothers surf the internet? I don't know, James. How do the Mario Brothers surf the internet? 
with a web browser. <laughs> I can't believe you found a topical joke. <laughs> <sighs>